The stage is set. Democrats ready for another round of debates ahead of the 2020 presidential election. We have a preview. A total loss. A historic Catholic church in the Diocese of Austin, Texas burns to the ground. Happy feast day. How the faithful in Detroit are honoring Blessed Solanus Casey. And a new beginning. An order of religious sisters in France dedicated to those with special needs. On EWTN News Nightly for Tuesday, July 30th, 2019. Good evening from Washington, D.C., and thanks for joining us for news from a Catholic perspective. I'm Jason Calvi. President Donald Trump says he'll be watching the next Democratic presidential debate. Ten candidates rumble tonight in Detroit, but the president doesn't think any of them will win the nomination. White House correspondent Mark Irons tells us more. Mark? Jason, there are over 20 Democratic candidates running for president. The front runner doesn't take the debate stage until tomorrow night, but other top candidates like Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders will stand in the spotlight tonight. Democrats continue the race to 2020 and a chance to take on President Trump. I'm feeling good. They prepare in Detroit for tonight's second round of debates. In Washington, President Trump is eyeing the field of competing Democrats, saying he thinks former Vice President Joe Biden will win the nomination after limping across the finish line. I think he's off his game by a lot, but I think personally, I think it's going to be Sleepy Joe. Biden will appear in the Wednesday wave of White House hopefuls. Tonight's round includes Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. It's a chance to talk about the things that I've worked on for all my life. Both Warren and Sanders support Medicare for All, expanding the plan that provides health care for seniors to all Americans. Both call health care a human right. Under the legislation that I have offered, every family in America would receive comprehensive coverage. But lacking in Democratic health care plans are protections for unborn babies. These candidates support abortion. Tonight, Democrats in Detroit may challenge President Trump's recent criticism of U.S. Congressman Elijah Cummings' Maryland district. It includes a large portion of Baltimore. The president called it a disgusting rat and rodent-infested mess. This is a, uh, a kind of terminology that he reserves for places and situations where there are a lot of minorities involved. Despite cries of racism from the left, President Trump stood by his remarks today saying they aren't bad for him or Baltimore. Now I think I'm helping myself because I'm uh, pointing out the tremendous corruption that's taken place in Baltimore. President Trump claimed today he was the least racist person in the world. Vice President Mike Pence also defended him, saying President Trump is someone who calls it like he sees it. We'll hear from the Democrats tonight during the debate. Jason. Okay, White House correspondent Mark Irons. Thanks, Mark. President Donald Trump calls it a momentous occasion. He's marking the 400th anniversary of the New World's first representative lawmaking body. He traveled to Jamestown, Virginia to celebrate the milestone of American democracy. And they journeyed into the unknown with only meager supplies, long odds, and the power of their Christian faith. The president praised America's earliest settlers, including Captain John Smith. And he said African-Americans built, strengthened, and sustained our nation from its earliest days. Some black state lawmakers boycotted the event. They were upset with the president's earlier criticisms of black leaders. The president also praises his pick to be director of national intelligence. He calls Congressman John Ratcliffe brilliant and very talented. The Texas Republican served as a mayor of a small town, a small city rather, and a federal prosecutor. 
but Democrats say he does not have enough experience in national security. The position includes oversight of 17 intelligence agencies. Current director Dan Coats says he's leaving next month. Joining us now to talk about this is Chris Plant, the host of nationally syndicated Chris Plant Radio Show. Chris, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. So Representative Ratcliffe, what do you think of him as the next director of national intelligence? Well, honestly, I think it was probably time for a change there just for openers. Uh, Senator Coates, Director Coates, was, he's a good man. In fact, President Trump was praising him today as a good guy, said there was no conflict there. But honestly, I think it's fairly apparent that it wasn't a very good fit. Uh, and uh, they didn't communicate well, and he didn't, uh, Director Coates didn't communicate well from the position of uh, the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence. I think Congressman Ratcliffe, with a, with a good background of, of being a chief executive on a, on a city level, being a prosecutor, a three-term member of Congress, but a guy who's not uh, a, a Washington, um, you know, an entrenched Washington bureaucrat. He's, he's still fresh enough from the outside where uh, I think he's, he's looking for the truth. We need, we need more people in positions of power in Washington that just want the truth and want the facts and want to get to the bottom of a lot of things that happened over the last few years. Uh, and, and also, look, he's a, good, he's a good, competent guy. It's not as though we have uh, barns filled with people waiting to take these positions in Washington. And we pretend sometimes that people that take the jobs are, are great. The Washington Post says they're great if they approve of their politics. And if they don't, then, of course, they, um, you know, they, they get the Washington Post treatment. So you mentioned, uh, you know, him searching for the truth. He came to prominence with this questioning of uh, a special counsel, Robert Mueller. Yeah. What do you think the possibility is for Ratcliffe's confirmation? Is he going to be confirmed by the Senate? Oh, I think he will. Yeah. I mean, uh, Mitch McConnell has got pretty good control over the Senate. Republicans have the majority in the Senate. The House doesn't have a say in this, so there will be very little disruption for the the sake of disruption, and uh, the position needs to be filled. So uh, let's, yeah, I think he'll, I think he'll be fine in the Senate. I was curious on your radio show this morning. You were talking about not Russian interference, but Soviet interference during the Cold War. A brand new report. What was that all about? Why was that relevant today, 2019? Well, I was uh, because my life was just kind of like this. Over the weekend, I was sitting at home, uh, sitting at home, reading a, a report by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a boring Washington think tank, CSIS. <laughs> but they produced a report uh, on uh, a sort of background on the Mueller report. And they uh, covered not only the history of Russian interference in our elections and other elections, but Soviet interference in our presidential elections. And uh, some interesting highlights were when the Soviet KGB, they had a special section that targeted American politics and presidential politics in particular. They, they targeted anti-Soviet voices in American politics who are typically Republicans from Barry Goldwater to Richard Nixon to Ronald Reagan. And they had a, a bag of tricks. They used media allies. They used fake think tanks. They used front, gr front groups in the United States. And they love to accuse people of racism, of, uh, of, of persecuting minorities. Uh, they accused one Scoop Jackson, one Democrat, of being a, a closet homosexual and produced fake documents produced ironically perhaps by J. Edgar Hoover saying that, uh, that Scoop Jackson was secretly gay. Hmm. Uh, uh, but their big push... Uh, for uh, anti-Soviet Republicans, conservatives in the United States during the Cold War was to accuse them of racism, to accuse them of, of being bigots and, and persecuting minorities. And this is the sort of stuff they spread through media allies and beyond. And uh, reading it, I couldn't help but think that, that the playbook is the same today 
Maybe the actors are a little bit different, but honestly, the whole dossier from the Hillary uh, Clinton campaign came from Putin's people. All the information contained in the Christopher Steele dossier is from Russian intelligence operatives. So much to talk about. We got the debates tonight. We'll talk to you again. Chris Plant, thank you thank so you. much. Thanks for the show. Great to have you on today. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. And lawmakers ask what's needed to help on the southern border? The acting commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Mark Morgan, testified today on Capitol Hill. The overcrowding that you see, we have all said that we have to do better, that children and families should not be held in, the, in police stations for a long-term period of time. We all agree with that. In, in the next 10 days, Morgan urged Congress to pass what he calls meaningful legislation. Homeland Security Observed Deputy Inspector General Jennifer Costello also testified. She challenged the Department of Homeland Security leadership to come up with a strategy to protect the safety, security, and care of those in its custody. A Vatican Archbishop offers a message of hope to Venezuela's faithful. The country under socialist control struggles with a lack of food and medicine. But Archbishop Jorge Patron Wong of the Congregation of the Clergy says there's no desert that doesn't end. He repeated the words of Pope Francis, let no one rob you of hope. For more on this story, including more of the Archbishop's words, visit our partners at catholicnewsagency.com. A murdered Italian police officer is laid to rest. Police accuse two American teens of the stabbing. It happened near the Roman hotel where the Americans were staying. Mario Rega was investigating a drug deal. His funeral was held in the very same church near Naples where he was married six weeks ago. Rega was 35 years old. One of the teens says he killed the officer in self-defense. Pope Francis pays a surprise visit to a sick Catholic sister. Sister Maria Mucci worked for years at the Casa Santa Marta. That's where Pope Francis lives. She served the Holy Father in many visitors. The Pope closed his visit by blessing other members of the Daughters of Charity. A world first in order of nuns welcoming people with Down syndrome. Vatican News says the Priory in France is the first to do so. The Little Sisters, Disciples of the Lamb, are based in LeBlanc, about 200 miles south of Paris. The community began in 1985 with one sister and a woman with Down syndrome. Now the community of 10 sisters hopes to welcome more women with special needs. Joining us now is Solène Tadier, European correspondent for the National Catholic Register. It took a long time for the church to recognize the community. How did it come about? There was a gradual recognition from the church as canon law and monastic rules didn't provide for the admission of people with mental disabilities to religious life. Uh, the community was created in the 1980s uh, and it took the sisters 14 years to get their community statutes recognized. They settled in the Diocese of Bourges uh, in, the in 1995 and the Archbishop of the place, Monsignor Plateau, help them uh, make them known in Rome, gain ground, and finally get the status of the Contemplative Religious Institute in 1999. Uh, uh, afterwards, eventually, uh, they got the, uh, the official statutes uh, of the community approved in 2011, after they gradually developed a priory and uh, a chapel. Uh, now, young women can, uh, with uh, that have a, down syndrome can join the community 
and become a noon after a discerning a period to their vocation, just like anyone else. Uh, Mother Lynn, uh, the mother superior of the community, consider they are really mature for that and they, they have the, the ability to, uh, to discern to their uh, personal life. Wow, what a beautiful story. And in 2017, the sisters met Pope Francis. Uh, tell us about that meeting. Well, they were invited by Monsignor Fisichella from, uh, he's the president of the, the Council for the Promotion of New Evangelization. Uh, they participated in a conference on uh, uh, catechesis and people with handicaps. The Holy Father personally and warmly welcomed them. Uh, he, he, he met them and talked to them. He blessed the community and expressed uh, his, uh, his gratitude as well as his encouragement for their uh, prophetic mission. And what is the typical day like for uh, this religious community? Uh, the little sister have uh, a specific devotion to Saint Benedict and Saint, uh, Saint, uh, uh, Saint Teresa of Lisieux. The schedule uh, follows uh, daily functions and tasks. Uh, they celebrate the Holy Mass every morning and uh, they, uh, they have several activities including weaving and a pottery workshop uh, and more recently the creation of a garden of uh, medicinal plants. Uh, as uh, Mother Lynn points out, uh, these uh, sisters with uh, uh, Down syndrome are very independent there as uh, the, um, the contemplative life allow them to live their life at their own pace. So this kind of life is very, uh, is, is very, has a very positive impact on their life. So beautiful. Solène Tadier, European correspondent for the National Catholic Register. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up. An inside look at the president's meeting with inner city pastors at the White House. And a historic church in Texas burns to the ground. In the wake over the controversy over his comments on the city of Baltimore, President Trump met with African-American leaders in the White House. The meeting yesterday was scheduled before the president's rants on Twitter against Congressman Elijah Cummings of Baltimore. Some say the tweets are racist. A group of about 20 people took part, including Alveda King, pro-life leader and the niece of Martin Luther King Jr. Our next guest was also at the meeting. Reverend Dean Nelson is chairman of the Douglas Leadership Institute. That's a national education and public policy organization. Thank you so much for being with us. What was discussed in the meeting? Uh, yesterday's meeting was one that was a follow-up from the one that they had last year. And it was basically designed to hear uh, from uh, African-American leaders from around the country regarding the initiatives that the president uh, started last year. So we discussed criminal justice reform, uh, economic opportunity, um, the First Step Act, as well as opportunity zones. And a number of the ministers inside uh, really affirmed the president's commitment to pro-life uh, as uh, those African-American ministers uh, understand the sacredness of human life and its uh, abortions devastation on the African-American community. I'm, I'm curious though, did anyone challenge the president about his tweets on Representative Cummings and the four Democratic women of color that he tweeted earlier this month? Um, the tweets from Baltimore uh, and the others didn't come up directly. Uh, the only time that Baltimore was mentioned uh, Secretary Carson uh, did bring it up, uh, but they were 
a number of ministers, I'm proud to say they were in the room, who took the opportunity to, in, I believe, a professional uh, way, to uh, ask the president to, um, well, I'll say they provided some constructive advice for the president as it relates to communicating um, with uh, African Americans and the communities of color. And I thought that he responded uh, to their, um, their suggestions very well. Constructive advice, maybe toning down some of this language a little bit? Um, I think that if you were in the room, you would have you would have gotten that that sense. Um, uh, four of them that I'm thinking about specifically uh, came at it at a number of ways, but uh, I think that the the message was received. And um, as I understand, even today, the uh, the president uh, had a couple of tweets that were quite affirming of uh, Democrats and Republicans working together. Uh, I saw him shaking hands with the lieutenant governor of Virginia today. Uh, so I believe that um, he is demonstrating. Um, I think a bipartisan approach, uh, and let's uh, we'll see. I mean, I know that uh, you know he's from Queens. He grew up in a different kind of an environment than maybe some of us, and uh, he's a fighter. But uh, I believe that his intentions to make good on the promises uh, to urban communities is real, and I'm hoping that people will not only look at uh, or listen to the things that he's said, but also look at the things that he's done. So let's talk a little bit more about what to do without your group, the Douglas Leadership Institute does aim to bridge the gap between African-American faith groups and, and the government, and you like to use those Christian values to help shape the policy. So what suggestions would you give, or, or did you even give yesterday to the president, on how to solve the problems in cities like uh, Baltimore? Yeah, um, we are happy that uh, our name is uh, taken after a great uh, man of God from Baltimore, Frederick Douglass, who, uh, you know, we might be reminded, said that, you know, I I will uh, work with anyone to do right and no one to do wrong. And our, our policy positions for the president were to continue to strengthen the black family by supporting uh, the type of things that he has already done, uh, economic opportunity and criminal justice reform. So I think that some of the things that he's already started are things that are great, particularly with opportunity zones. And we're working with the administration and uh, Senator Tim Scott uh, your viewers might also like to know Cory Booker was also a proponent of these opportunity zones, who is now, you know, a Democratic uh, presidential uh, contender. So I believe that those are the type of initiatives that should be done and move forward with to see uh, economic prosperity as well as uh, educational stability and uh, strengthening the black family in urban communities. I'd like to hear more about those opportunity zones, but we have to wrap right here. So Reverend Dean Nelson, chairman of the Douglas Leadership Institute, thanks so much for your time. God bless you. Thank you so much. A historic Catholic church in Central Texas has burned to the ground. The Church of the Visitation in Westphalia was built in 1895. It served a farming community of nearly 250 families, and it was said to be the largest all-wood church in the state. The stained glass windows even came from Germany. The Diocese of Austin says it doesn't know the cause, but a spokesman just told me they did rescue some of the Blessed Sacrament. Up next, the faithful in Detroit honor Blessed Solanus Casey and how a group of nuns is fighting against human trafficking. All are welcome uh, to the celebration of our blessed brother Solanus Casey. Hundreds gather at the Solanus Center in Detroit. They're celebrating the feast day of Blessed Solanus Casey. The simple priest worked for years as the doorkeeper at St. Bonaventure Monastery. 
Many consider him instrumental in their blessings and cures. Father Solanus died in 1957. The church beatified him in 2017. That puts him one step away from possible sainthood. The Holy See mission to the United Nations is highlighting the work of women religious who fight human trafficking. What has surprised me the most about working with the nuns is to really see firsthand their total engagement and chutzpah. Lisa Christine is a photographer who travels the world to capture the faces of its victims. Her work is being displayed in an exhibit called Nuns Healing Hearts. Pope Francis officially launched the campaign to fight the scourge of human trafficking in May at the Vatican. Let's talk about that with our UN correspondent, Sabrina Farisi. She joins us from the United Nations in New York. Sabrina, can you tell us a little bit more about the network of sisters? What exactly is it? Okay, the network is called the Talitha Kum International Network of Nuns. They are nuns specifically organized to fight against human trafficking. They were established 10 years ago. They're in 77 countries, in five continents, and about 2,000 of these nuns have consecrated themselves to fighting human trafficking. Last year alone, they reached 15,500 survivors. Mm. The name comes from a gospel story where Jesus raises a girl from the dead by saying, Talitha kum, which means rise up. And indeed, these nuns are acting to rise up the victims of human trafficking through rehabilitation and reintegration. As one nun told us yesterday on the panel, she said, what happens to you as a victim doesn't have to define you. Incredible. And why are Catholic nuns, sisters, so important in this fight against human trafficking? Nuns are really the unsung heroes of this movement. And all the groups involved in fighting human trafficking keep saying this. So there are a couple of reasons. First of all, nuns live in communities among the poor all over the world. In many cases, they're already offering social services to the poor. And we have to remember that the poor are the most vulnerable to human trafficking. Secondly, they're women of faith, and they offer hope to the victims. Many of the victims may not even be Christian, but they believe in God, and this common belief in God and the dignity of the human person forms a bond between the nuns and the victims. Finally, they're women. We have to remember that 70% of the victims of human trafficking are girls who are forced into prostitution, and they lose trust in men. So in order to heal, they need to spend time in the loving embrace of prayerful women, and, and these nuns give them that. I want to ask you about the exhibit which was launched at the Vatican in May. Uh, what did the Holy Father think at that point, and, and how did people at yesterday's event respond? Okay. Pope Francis thinks that Lisa Christine's work as a humanitarian photographer is very important because she's been photographing the victims of human trafficking for the last 10 years. He was so impressed with her work that, as you said, he launched an exhibit May 10th in the Vatican of last year because this exhibit really puts a human face on this terrible, terrible scourge. Last night at the um, exhibit here at the UN, people were very enthusiastic and moved. Lisa Christine gave a presentation where she told many stories of the people behind each photograph. And you know, Jason, when you hear these stories, the horror of human trafficking becomes more than just a statistic. It becomes a reality. So, so such a scourge. Sabrina Farisi reporting from the United Nations. Thanks so much, Sabrina. Thanks, Jason. And finally tonight, you can soon tour the childhood home of Pope John Paul I. The house in the Dolomite Mountains in northern Italy opens Friday. 
Albino Luciani was born and baptized right there. John Paul I is known as the Smiling Pope. He died in 1978 at the age of 65 after just 33 days as pontiff. His cause for canonization is ongoing. I'm Jason Calvi, and for the entire EWTN News Nightly team, we thank you for watching tonight. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from a Catholic perspective. Good night, and God bless.